everyone. It is Lani. I am coming to you to let you know that this is the much promised Karen Berger interview. We are going to split this up into two sections because the interview went really, really long, but it's full of amazing stuff like what it was like to be there on the ground in the 90s when the things that comic books could do was changing um, and all of the experiences and the people. Uh, this conversation is between Elisa and Karen. I kind of wanted to sit there like a fly on the wall and just kind of absorb um, what they were saying because it was such a fascinating conversation. Um, I do have to apologize, though. I set up the uh, microphones and I did a poor job. Um, and I put the microphone a little bit too close to Karen. And so whenever she moves, we do get a little bit of um, microphone interference. I've tried to mitigate that as much as possible. I do apologize. I hope that doesn't take away from your enjoyment in listening to this. Uh, we'll have part one this week part two next week and uh, I hope that you guys enjoy it as much as I did hey hey <laughs> welcome to my kitchen <laughs> um, so everybody I'm going to give you the formal introduction to Karen Berger who is physically sitting across from my breakfast whatever you call this thing uh, island island my breakfast island as opposed to zoomishly transmitted to me from distant climes. Karen Berger is the visionary editor who pioneered creator-owned comics, launched the careers of countless superstar writers and artists and editors, and created the Vertigo imprint at DC Comics. For decades, her name has been uttered with a combination of awe, hope, and occasionally fear. In addition to The Sandman, many of Karen's Vertigo comics have become major television series including Neil Gaiman's Lucifer, Garth Ennis's Preacher, Brian K. Vaughan's Why the Last Man, and Jeff Lemire's Sweet Tooth. Lemire? Lemire. Lemire's. Lemire. Jeff Lemire's Sweet Lemire's Tooth. Lemire's Sweet Tooth, yes. While both DC and Marvel focus on blockbuster movies but have moved away from creator-owned deals, Karen's new imprint, Burger Books at Dark Horse, continues to find and nurture new comic book talent. And in addition to all of this, Karen Berger was my boss and <laughs> and my friend and remains my my friend and sometimes bosses me. So welcome, Karen. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me, Elisa. Yay. So um, we have we've had a fun uh, yesterday was really fun. We went to um, Mega Brain, our local comic book store that and Oblong, our local bookstore. Also a little shoe and jewelry shopping. But now we're down to the serious business of talking about you and Sandman and Neil. So I'm going to take you back a little bit in time, okay? So the, the very first book that you edited at DC was The House of Mystery. And I think some of our, some of our listeners may know Cain and Abel just from Sandman and how far we've, we've read so far. So can you tell a little bit about House of Mystery and its horror host? Well, I started editing House of Mystery. Actually, I was the last editor of, of the title before it was officially retired as a monthly series at DC. I came in on House of Mystery 292, and my last issue was House of Mystery 312. Um, my Kaluta, um, very nicely gifted me the cover to the final issue and the intro page of the very first issue um, 
uh, that I edited 292 um, was written by Len Wein and was drawn by Romeo Tanghao. And Romeo uh, also gifted me that piece of art. So it's it was very, very cool. Um, but to answer your question about Cain and Abel, um, Cain and Abel, um, the comic book characters, as opposed to the bi biblical characters, based on the biblical characters, of course, um, were created actually by Joe Orlando um, before my time in comics, um, early 70s, when he launched um, the uh, House of Mystery and House of Secret titles, among other um, comic series at DC Comics. For people who don't know who Joe Orlando was, um, he, he was a wonderful, warm, funny, creative um, artist, editor, and mentor to so many people in comics, um, particularly Paul Levitz, who was my boss um, and friend now. Um, and I guess we were kind of friendly when we were working together, but we became fr really good friends more so when we were when and when we were you know later on in years. And um, so actually, Joe had hired Paul Levitz, who had hired me. And um, but Joe got his uh, roots as his roots go back to an artist at Mad magazine. So Joe had been working at Mad. Wait, can I just say that sure. when I was there, um, and, we were and in different the buildings. And Mad the was on a, yes, a different it, floor. Yeah, it was but, on a different floor. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Joe started at the, as a young artist at, at EC Comics on the horror titles, which were like Tales of the Crypt, which were you know the progenitors to to House of Mystery and House of Secrets. I and mean, that's where Joe, I think, was got the idea, hey, why don't we still continue to do this? But um, but that that was in the pre-Wortham days. And then it was because of those comics that um, Frederick Wortham came in and the whole seduction of the innocent so and, wait, let the, me, and McCarthy stuff. I know, yeah, I'm so me, digressing <laughs> here from the original question. No, no, this but is a really cool... But it goes back to Joe, yeah. No, this is a really cool point that you're making. So with horror comics, they, EC was amazing in that it it had all these great horror hosts and it was a horror anthology. And some of their stories were pretty horrorful. And then uh, a... Uh, a book came out that was very influential by, by a psychiatrist. By a psychiatrist who said this is corrupting the youth of America, and then uh, all of these things became much more censored. And so, House of Mystery and House of Secrets, which were Joe Orlando's DC versions of the books, were much more dialed down on the horror. And of course, when Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman took over, and and you know a series where we had Cain and Abel, they dialed the horror back up. And that was, so it's the, it's the cycle of horror. It is a cycle of horror, right? I mean, um, at EC, um, because of Wortham's book, um, William M. Gaines, who, you know, was creator of MAD, he, um, he was, you know, called before the McCarthy hearings. And, you know, they're, um, yeah, so it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's, I didn't know yeah, that. yeah, it's pretty, it's, yeah, you should look it up. Everyone out there should look up it. It's pretty cool. There's, oh my God, yeah, I did yeah, not and, and that. he gave some, some very kind of, um, memorable, uh, testimony, uh, which, uh, is very brave and, um, fearless man. And anyway, but because of that, because of this whole, Hullabaloo, hullabaloo, does anybody even say that anymore? Um, <laughs> I never even said it, but anyway, because of this whole uh, 
50s, Cold War, you know, all this kind of arch, um, crazy um, McCarthy hearings. Um, the, the Comics Code was instituted for... for we weren't allowed to have zombies, right? right I mean, even comics, at the beginning yeah. of Sandman, right? Oh, there were set rules that you couldn't... Um, well, no, when we were working on, on Sandman, no, was, there was no comics code. I mean, okay. there was no comics. Um, we were... At the, I forget what year the comics code um, was abolished. It was basically what happened at, after the McCarthy hearings, I guess, McCar whoever the hell, congressional, who, whoever end up made the decisions then basically said to you know all the comic book companies you can continue um comics but you have to create within yourself your own sort of um guidelines yeah. and rules and in a sense and one of them was no sense. zombies right for a long time there were so zombies, many there was no, no zombies yeah. there was you can portray um a you know official like the president of the united states in a um, you know derogatory light, way, yes. and you know that that's a really funny story for me is that um, my very first issue of House of Mystery, um, I was allowed to. I had only been working DC Comics for like six months. And Paul Levitz, who had hired me, who was my boss, um, Paul had Paul had a combination job. He pretty much did everything, um, but he was mainly editorial coordinator and handled all the scheduling and the and, and deadlines and just the whole sort of publishing picture working underneath Joe Orlando. Um, and he also edited the Batman books and he also edited a House of Mystery. So after six months, he said to me, hey, you know, let's see if, if you have any talent in you. So here, we can co-edit this, let's co- No I'll, pressure. I'll, I'll co- You know, we can co-edit. We can co-edit the series. And House of Mystery was always used as a training ground for, for new talent, new writers and artists. So editors were able to, um, former editors, just buy stuff and just put it in an inventory and not publish it. So I had like stacks of inventory that I had, that I was, uh, of unused stuff that I had to use because I had all this stuff that it, they had paid for going back years, but I was also allowed to buy some new material. Um, and one recent story, which for some reason not, never got to publication, was a story written by my dearest friend, J.M. DeMattis, who was the guy who introduced me to comics back when I was um, in college. And he had written a, a story called Government Vampire, and essentially, it was, you know, about a, guy, a soldier in the Vietnam War. He, you know, goes into a, a cave um, to fight the uh, North Vietnamese. There's, a, you know, there's all these bats. And it turns out, you know, there's a vampire bat gets, you know, gets to him. He turns into a vampire. And he comes back to the United States. And he essentially becomes president of the United States. And then at the very, and you think he's still a really good guy. And at the very end, the last panel, he just like kind of, you know, bears his you know, fangs and lunges on whoever the hell he's talking to. And it was a great way to end that. So I, I love that story. I put it in my first issue and it was rejected by the comics code. And I was mortified, mortified that the first comic I edited was rejected from the, by the comics code. Um, so I had to pull it out and put it, I put in something else. Wait, um, this is, this is, 
government you know, vampire. No, but yeah. no, this is wonderful because, of course, your whole career has been about flouting conventions, yes. breaking rules. So this was early Karen already. Right, right. Um, and then three years later, when the comics code was really had, didn't have much influence anymore. We, it was before we started doing, quote unquote, suggested for mature readers comics, but they had, you know, they they were really kind of irrelevant, um, but they were still around. So, but I did put in the, my very last issue of House of Mystery, I put that story in and, oh, and you know, yeah, no comment on it at all. So I passed through with the flying colors. But I will say that I do wear that as a, I have always worn that as a badge of honor that my first um, com- comic story was rejected by the comics code. Yeah, the first edit- editor, whatever title that I edited was rejected by the code. I think it's pretty cool. Your sensibility (laughs) was already. And I wasn't trying to do it. I was like, oh my, you know, whatever. But your sensibility (laughs) was already looking for things that were not necessarily aimed at children. I think you were in that transitional place with House of Mystery where previously this had been a horror title really aimed at kids. I grew up loving and reading Mm -hmm. House of Mystery and that was hosted by Kane and also House of Secrets, which was hosted by right, Abel. Abel. Right. Can you, you mentioned Len Wein. I think right. you need to tell yeah. some of our listeners who don't know the relationship between Len and Kane. Well, um, Len is the co-creator of Swamp Thing and um, Wolverine and, um, you know, many um, really great uh, DC and Marvel characters. Um, but he was all, he's, Len was a, was a wonderful, wonderful writer mentor to me very dear friend and um sadly passed away several years ago um and he was great to be around really enthusiastic really creative um really made working at dc comics a lot of fun and he taught me a lot about storytelling about how you have to care about your characters in your story utmost he also um was the model for kane and uh, the physical the model. Physical model so he wore these brown corduroy jackets, right. which is still what uh, right. Kane wears all the time. And then Mark Evanier, not Mark, God, sorry, Mark Evanier, uh, Mark Hannerfeld um, was the also a writer in those days and also, I believe, an assistant editor at DC, again, way before my time. Um, he was the model for April. So, uh, yeah, so, but Joe started the, the, the series and, um, uh, and Kane and Abel were kind of the, you know, the, the, the hosts, they were like the hosts, the MCs for each of their comics and each story, the page one was always an intro page where you'd see Kane or Abel do the little spiel, kind of give a kind of little funny, uh, you know, uh, introduction to the stories that are going on in the books and the creators and kind of, you know, be clever and, you know, Len's, Len's intro page is a lot more clever than, um, than mine, but I ended up writing all the intro. Whoever was the editor was wrote all the intro pages for their I didn't. Yeah. So I I I either didn't know that or didn't remember it. Yeah. I mean, Len wrote the intro page for mine because it was all all about Len being kicked down the stairs, you know, um, by Kane saying, okay, another spineless editor. You know, I've had enough with you. I hear there's another editor out there. We need someone new with, you know, new ideas, you know, 
um, and someone who isn't afraid to take any chances. We yeah. have to get a and picture of that panel yes. because that well, will be like young Karen. Yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah. So and then uh, yeah. So it, it, it yeah. Okay. So cool. let me let me just take this through line of Cain and Abel, and because uh, there's so many things we could talk about. Maybe we can even do a, a follow up because there's my mind is buzzing with all the things I want to talk to you about, but. One of the things, and we will get to Sandman, but you also edited a little book called Swamp Thing with a uh, writer named Alan Moore. And he was the one who kind of plucked Cain and Abel initially. And what was really interesting, and that was really by chance, because um, this was early on in uh, Alan's run and Swamp Thing with, you know, Steve Bissett and John Tonelbin and and Rick Veach on occasional... um, issues. And um, Alan um, had written The Rite of Spring, which was the big, big, um, you know, sex and horror, sex and horror story. This was the, the big moment where, where, where Swamp Thing and Abby were, you know, finally, you know, got it on, you know, physically with each other. And it was, the, I believe the story was, I don't know if it was longer than whatever, 27 pages at the time, but it seemed longer because there was just so much in there. Um, but beautiful. Steve Bissett, um, brilliant storyteller, um, really just such exciting, you know, heartfelt um, emotion he would bring to, to, to the characters. Um, and But also how he, he um, really experimented with uh, composition on the page. And with this story, he really did. And Steve was kind of slow anyway as an artist. Um, he will know that. And, he, and if he's listening to this, I'm sure he will have a good <laughs> laugh or many laughs about it. Um, but he, um, so Steve was, was kind of slow, you know, in a monthly book. It's hard to do a monthly book regardless. And I have so much admiration for, um, for artists who, who do this monthly. Um, and back in those days, even as a penciler and separate inkers, it's you know it's a lot of work to sit down and 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 be be able to produce uh, you know twenty those days it was like twenty seven pages anyway so um, so we knew that the book was running late the comic book was going to run late and Steve the work that Steve was sending in that John Talbin you know as the inker brought this whole other level of detail and, and illustration to, to 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 steve's work um we knew that it was going to take longer and we knew how big this issue was and at this point alan was the book was was finally starting to catch on when alan first started on swamp thing when len had hired him you know the book was on verge of cancellation len knew of alan's work from his british comics like uh Viva Vendetta. So, um, so Alan was, you know, hadn't done anything in American comics. No one knew how something was going to do, and you know, if it was going to be able to. I think it was selling like seventeen thousand copies then, which was like really low. So, um, thought after a few issues, people were like, oh my god, this guy Alan is like, wow. I mean, no one had ever, you know, seen a writer like this before. And I think by the time issue, and so the comic sales were really building at that point. So if Alan started with issue 20, I believe, um, and then I came on as editor issue 25, um, Writer's Spring was issue 34. It was supposed to be issue 33, but again, it was taking so long and really did, we knew it was, it was gonna be so special. And in those days, you did not, when you're working on monthly comics, 
you didn't ship late. It was not, you just didn't do it. I mean, they would throw in a fill-in issue, an old thing, a reprint, um, just so you were out there on the newsstands every month. Well, we we didn't have any fill-in issues on Swamp Thing. It was, you know, Alan's vision, and and we didn't have any, you know, he was telling a story that he had essentially plotted out for five years from 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 the start. Um, so I was, I called Alan, I'm like, man, you know, I don't really know what to do. We're never going to get this book out on time. We have to. I don't want to bring in another artist to help Steve with it. It really, you know, what he's doing is just amazing. And so... You know, so I said to Alan, is there any way that we can do something quick that we can, you know, can come up with something quick that we can uh, kind of put in ahead of time? So he he said, well, you know, Karen, I always wanted to find a way to work in Cain and Abel um, into uh, the Swamp Thing kind of storyline um but i I just want to say i love how much like the needs of the schedule and expediency come in and combine with artistic vision to to create this yeah exactly it's all chance but but actually no i will take it back what he first said to me there was always a way he wanted to take len's original len and bernie wrightson's original swamp thing story that was in, um, I believe it was a, in House of Secrets originally. I don't Wait, remember. Can I just, I'm just going to give yeah. a little bit of context. So again, Len Wein, the writer, and Bernie Wrightson, the artist, uh, an amazing horror artist, mm. and, you know, who um, was one of the, the artists that I grew up looking at. He, he Incredible. He did like Genius. dripping mouths. He did these wide mouths with the dripping saliva and sort of effluvia at, like no one else. It was uh, just, anyway, sorry. Well, but no, in his, in his later work, the, the Frankenstein adaptation yes. that he did. I mean, that is um, some of the most exquisite pen and ink art I've seen from any artist, but any he, fine so, artist. So Len and... Just beautiful and, illustration work. Yeah, yeah, no, gorgeous. But Len yeah. and Bernie had done an, a, a Swamp Thing. And then... And, and the way Swamp Thing had started as just another short story, an anthology story that Joe had asked them to write. Um, and... Um, and then the story was so popular. It was just this eight-page story about the scientist who, you know, who gets blown up an explosion. He's working on plant, you know, plant Genetics, future yes. genetic modifications. And he walks out and he right becomes and he misses goes, his fiance. He runs out into a swamp and he comes out of a swamp thing. But he's trapped inside, you know, Alec Holland, the human is trapped inside. Well everyone knows who swamp thing is no, no. who's reading his who's watching his podcast. So I just so. want to say we have a lot of listeners who are new to comics. Okay. And so what we're talking about here is the way in which Alan Moore took an existing character and existing story and created a retrofitted history. And so listeners who are newer to comics may be recognizing that this is just what Neil Gaiman did. And Lonnie and I have been talking about the way that Neil built on comics lore. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know that this is the direction we were going to take, but we're really talking a lot about how, you know, Alan Moore did, a lot of this kind of taking comics from horror for kids that wasn't, you couldn't mention zombies and turned it into something more complex and political and nuanced. And so there was this precedent. Yes. And, and very quickly, so we so we can, you know, jump in and, and talk about Salmon um, more directly, is that um, so Alan said, okay, well, why don't we take that 
original eight-page story, and I'll write a framing sequence around it. And then he used Cain and Abel um, as, you know, the two hosts of the House of Mystery, but he was really playing into them as brothers and 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 the tension and the and the and going back to the biblical myth of you know fratricide and 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 how you know Cain killing Abel was something that just kept on repeating again and again um, through um, through the story, and then later on um, Neil went further with that. Um, when he featured Kenny Nabel in uh, Salmon. And so, that, and then so, and Ron Randall, uh, another uh, dear old friend, he was brought in to, to, to draw the Kenny Nabel stuff. And then around the Lennon Bernie um, story, which was one of the stories that Kane, you know, uh, sort of introed in the book, it was all done very seamlessly. And, and that, so all of a sudden, Kane and Nabel are sort of part of, you know, this uh, new, more adult this, horror universe exactly. of DC. And then Neil, in many years later, with issue two of Salmon, really um, took that idea um, of Alan's and really kind of firmly put them in the DC universe, um, in, in the supernatural um, fringes of the DC universe. So. so I love this. And this now does bring us around to Neil. So I want to go go back one little step so here you were you had obviously edited um house of mystery and swamp thing you'd also um edited amethyst princess of gemworld which we'll have to talk about at another another time because i know you love amethyst deeply i love amethyst um she's like the shazam the female shazam where anyway but that's another story but then you started to become at this incredibly young age someone who would go to the uk scouting for talent, how did this happen? What made you think, you know, the United Kingdom? I must go to the United Kingdom and find more Alan Moore-esque writers and creators. Well, the, I'll try to make this a very short story, short version of this. But it was 1986, and I was, you know, had been working with Alan Moore and Swamp Thing for several years, probably like three years at that point. Um, and so, and Alan and I had a really great relationship, a wonderful, wonderful person. And uh, I had also become friends with Brian Bolland and Dave Gibbons. And even though we hadn't worked with each other at that Those time, are artists, I'll just mention. Those yeah, are I mean, the most amazing artists ever yes. in comics, you know. Um, and they uh, were the first British artists to actually, you know, cross the pond and come visit DC Comics. So it was always like, you know, it was like the Beatles were in town when, when, <laughs> when Brian and Dave would come to visit. So I became friendly with them. And uh, Wait, how old were all of you? Can you just... Um, well, they're like 10 years older than me, I think. So I was probably... I think Alan's five years older than me and Brian you were a and Dave ten. Editor. So I was, yeah. I mean, I started working at DC when I was twenty-one, and I think I was editing Swamp Thing when I was twenty-five. So I would say when I was twenty-eight, um, uh, I Jeanette Kahn, the legendary um, 
amazing visionary oh. of DC Comics, the president and publisher of DC Comics. Wait, can I just say that yes. we were in um, Mega Brain in Rhinebeck at the comic book store, and what did we see on the little uh, newsstand rack, like That's in the right. old days, was Dynamite, which was the magazine, the Scholastic magazine that was in all the public schools in the 70s that was edited by... Jeanette, when she was a child of 21. Right. And that's how she was then, you know, um, uh, discovered or whatever. She was sought after by Bill Sarnoff, who was the chairman of Warner Publishing, when he was looking for a new publisher for DC Comics. And he had, I think, one of his kids, you know, had brought the, you know, Dynamite home or, or worked on it. Dynamite was a magazine that was all written and drawn and edited by by children and Jeanette was, you know, the I guess, I Uber it. editor. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so Jeanette is amazing and the best. And and if it wasn't for Jeanette, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be having this podcast. There would be no Sandman. There would be no Vertigo. Modern comics would just not be what they are now. Jeanette had the bravery and the vision and the and the forethought to to look at comics, you know, back in the 70s and say, hey, you know, I love the company characters, I love what we're doing here, but we, we need to be able to make comics a place where you can tell any kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that idea, and I remember when I first met her, she told me that, you can tell any kind of story in comics, and, and it doesn't have to be about superheroes. And I remember thinking, well, well, what are we going to do then? Because that's all we publish. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know anything about comics when I first got to DC. I hadn't read comics as a kid. So I really came in as an outsider and, you know, quickly had to kind of do a real crash course um, uh, on, um, you know, DC's history. It is a long history, even at that point. So, um, but, uh, but it always stuck in my head that, what Jeanette said that you can tell any kind of story and you really should kind of, you know, can, try can to I, break. I, I just want to say something ceiling. ridiculous yeah. and human about. So I, it, when I first went to work at DC Comics, everyone had collectibles all over their house, their offices. And so everybody sort of uh, demonstrated their fandoms. And this was a time when people weren't as geeky. And there's Jeanette. She was the president of the company. And you go in and first of all, she was sort of fabulous and fashionable. So she had this bright auburn hair. She wore wonderful designer clothes. And in her office, which had this, you know, stupendous view of the city of New York City, uh, she had a collection of noggies. Mm -hmm. So naugahyde was a fake leather from the, I guess, 60s and 70s. And they made these promotional Naugahyde critters, creatures, and yeah, they so, were so she cute. had like the world's she largest like 25 collection of noggies. Yeah, they're great. I just yeah. needed to say that. Yeah, about no, Jeanette, I, lo- I love people them. Need I love to the noggies. Jeanette had the best office. Best <laughs> office, really. bright yellow and orange furniture and red. And yeah, Jeanette is you know cheerful as is Jeanette. Jeanette is is one of the smartest people I know. Um, probably the nicest person I've ever met. She's deceptively. I remember her, you know, being deceptively sort of girlish and charming and friendly and light. She wasn't, you know, you always think of a powerful woman as being, right. you know, kind of a low voiced, you know, bitchy woman. Yeah, very soft spoken. She yeah. was like, oh, High this voice. could be so much yes. fun. Yeah, right. Yeah. But um, very, very smart, very shrewd in her own way. And um, 
and just created this atmosphere at DC Comics where create where you could really like let your mind wander and and you were free to um just do things differently and and the people she hired and the people who worked for her you know in their own way um you know kind of i think took that uh really in a sense unspoken guidance i mean she did talk about it but you know but just responded to the fact that dc comics was for editors a very creatively open place and um and just kind of took that spirit and and sort of helped make it their own on on the titles that they were working on and um yeah all right so karen i i wanted to just ask you about how Jeanette Kahn worked together with Paul Levitz. I think a lot of people who are watching HBO's Succession and imagining, you know, two powerful personalities and shrewd intelligences at the top of a company would imagine they'd be in competition. But that really wasn't the case, was it? Oh, not at all. Jeanette Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz, you know, worked, you know, really hand in hand on, um, you know, making DC Comics the fantastic company that it is today. And if it wasn't for the two of them, um, the you know, DC just just wouldn't be as creatively rich. Um, the characters that were created under their watch and developed under their watch that um, had then gone on to become uh, streaming shows, TV shows, feature films, None of that stuff would have happened um, if, it, if, if, particularly in the creator-owned books, um, and, and Sam and um, if uh, Jeanette and Paul weren't there. Um, between both of their respect and creative vision yeah. and their integrity, the both of them just had such, um, you know, they were just—they are just good people. They just do the right thing. Just thoughtful people and and I, I won't say that I agreed with them all the time on on things that some I wouldn't say an edict that would come down or or a company policy but you know 99.9% of the time that I did um, they were still in charge I still answered to the higher powers <laughs> that funded you know uh, for Warner Publishing and first you know and then Warner Brothers um, but they took these creative chances so let's go back for a second because what you know in a way Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz created an atmosphere in which you could really pursue your tastes and interests and you went on to create an atmosphere in which writers and artists could really express themselves and follow their vision. But let's let's go to this trip to the UK. When did these trips to the UK to scout talent? Did it start in 1986? Yeah, it basically started in 1986. We were um, at an editorial retreat, um, I believe in Mohonk, New York, which is not too far from here. And... Um, Jeanette and Paul and Dick Giordano, who was um, a lovely, lovely man. Um, he was head and of a great artist and a great artist, and he was head of editorial for many years um, during the the eighties and all of the eighties up until the early nineties. And it was under his watch that 
you know, all this great shit happened <laughs> as well. Yes. You know, um, Watchmen and, and Dark Knight, John Byrne's sort of retake on Superman, which was very big. George Perez's um, rethink on Wonder Woman, which I also edited. That was really Which awesome. was a very feminist, humanist point of view for the character and 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 the world and 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 how she perceived the world how she perceived the world should be and so there was there was a lot going on in the comic scene in the 1980s you had dark knight yeah you had um watchman which was still in serialized at that point which was huge obviously at the time and then there was mouse you know it's big Luthen's mouse which god won the pulitzer prize and uh um, how amazing that a that a graphic novel um, won the Pulitzer Prize, especially back then too. You see, you're really becoming and aware of what so, comics could do, right? But it was still this was at the very very start of that. But then DC, but there was there was definitely there was a lot bubbling there, um, and then and then on the company characters again, you had the you know George's Wonder Woman and 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 Frank's you know Dark Knight and. Um, and then, you know, Alan and Dave's Watchmen, you could see what could be done with sort of the superhero, um, with a, you know, with prime superhero characters. Um, and so, you know, we're at, we would do these editorial re retreats several times wait, wait. a year. I just need to point out for anyone who doesn't know that Mohunk Mountain House is a Victorian uh, lakefront house that was, I think, one of the models. Built by Quakers. Actually. Built by Quakers, but it was one of the models for the hotel, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. It was. And so beautiful. It is, so it beautiful. is so gothic and spooky. So you got to imagine all these amazing talents in this beautiful, gothic, spooky-ass house. But the thing, the thing about Mohonk, it was beautiful, but... The food was lousy. We, you know, all our meals were now in the dining room. Good. The food was lousy. Yeah, sorry, sorry, present day. And, and you can't afford it anymore. But anyway, right. and 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 because it was owned by Quakers, there was there was no bar and there's no alcohol. So which was which was kind of <laughs> tough. So we would have to we would have to bring in our own alcohol. But anyway, no, you know, whatever for at nighttime. So, um, but anyway, so it was at one of these retreats. Jeanette said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to England next week." Um, she would go every year to uh, the annual comic show at the University College of London, which was called UCAC, United Kingdom Comics Art Convention. And Jeanette had been courting British 2000 AD writers and artists for several years at that point. Um, Can you say what 2000 AD 2000 AD um, is a legendary um, British comics magazine, which has been around since... A believe 77 or 78 or 79 and um judge dread is probably the biggest character that um you know came out of uh of of 2000 id um but 2000 id was the breeding ground um for so much amazing talent i mean in comics um and john wagner who and carlos Square, who co-created judge dread and um alan grand dave gibbons alan moore i mean everybody started there everybody started there um and stayed that many people continually stayed doing comics for 2000 id um but the British, the 2000 AD comics, the reason why I liked them was that it had this real anarchic spirit to the it stories. Was very political. It's it was very political. Yes, dark very political. Time in, in English a lot politics. of black, yeah, black, a lot of black humor, very political. And 
um, and really out there and still within the boundaries of, I guess, still being able to sold on, on a newsstand in, in the UK. Um, but, you know, the writers working there were just really, um, you know, there was just something going on there that I, that sparked my interest in terms of seeing the different kinds of stories you could do in comics. That's different sensibility than, than American writers. Um, and basically, but Jeanette said to me, hey, I'm going over a lot of the British talent who are already starting to work for some of the other editors here, some of the several artists. They kind of feel, you know, they. I feel like we should have someone else um, to be sort of their spokesperson, their liaison, they, the editors they had worked with, a lot of the artists. Um, felt that you know they didn't hear from their American art their editors too often and you know this isn't ages ago you know it was only the telephone it was way pre pre computers pre internet and I think a lot of it sounds ridiculous but I think some of the editors were afraid to dial the extra digits for the for the UK for the UK <laughs> you know oh one one four four you know it was so scary so guys in the but old days before you called another they're country very shy. yeah you you had to you had to dial all these numbers and get the country code and then you'd hear this thing yes very good and, and yes. sometimes it would I'm sorry all the digits in this country are busy right now please try again later it was very intimidating <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so Janessa, I just want you to meet people and just you can kind of come with me and and you already know Alan and Dave and and uh, and Brian and um, and I already had just started working with Jamie Delano on, on Hellblazer and I don't believe the book was out, the comic was out yet, um, but Alan had introduced me to Jamie. Um, Jamie had uh, worked worked. Um, was friends with Alan and um, and had sort of taken over other uh, UK series that Alan had written and um, in, in uh, I think there was a run on Captain Marvel. But when I got to England and I, you know, met David Lloyd, a lot of these people who I'd spoken to on the phone, but I, but I hadn't personally met. And uh, the Convo convention was very small then. It was like the next year after was when they took over like a big section of the at, at the at, at UCL. It was just a great time, and but I realized that there was a lot of new talent, kind of in the in the you know Waiting poking the up, you know poking up around you know in the edges there. And I you know I went to a bunch of local comic book shops there and saw you know independent comic scene going on and bought a bunch of stuff and. Um, and I was just really kind of taken by the newer British writers and artists, people who were just starting out a 2000 idea, you know, like um, Pete Milligan and Brendan McCarthy and Brett Ewens. And um, so I uh, so I just kind of put the word out that, hey, you know, my next show, I had this great trip. And after that, I talked to Paul and Jeanette and Dick. I said, you know what, why don't we, I think there's just so much talent here. Um, and they we were at that in those days, editors were really charged with um, growing the number of titles of DC Comics. We're really doing more, not just doing it as a number, but really, you know, again, trying to even with the DC, DC characters. I mean, that's all we were doing. It's not creating our own books back then, um, but it was can you take an old, an old DC Comics character or even a flagship character and do something cool and different with it. 
All right. That is it for this week's uh, conversation with Karen Berger. We will be back next week with more. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jane, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, and Stephania. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Be sure to check out the link to Karen's imprint at Dark Horse Comics Burger Books. It's right there in your show notes. We will be back next week with the second half of Karen's interview where she talks about going to the UK to scout talent. And I think we all know how that turned out. Thank you so much to Karen for taking the time to hang out and talk to us. And Karen... Really sorry about that mic placement, babe.